So for those of you that don't know me, my name is Dr. Mayfield. I am a local counselor in town, but also a new lifer and a former pastor, and just uh, really excited to be with you today as we talk. And I really appreciate Josh for uh, putting priority on mental health in the church. And so thank you, Josh, for having me today and next week with Pastor Brad. So it'll be great. But I want to ask you this question. If you have a piece of paper on your table, I want you to write down your answer, and we'll come back to it in a little bit. But as you think about humankind, as you think about our deepest needs, what would you say, in your opinion, is our deepest need as a human being? Not a Sunday school answer of Jesus. (laughs) But there's, yes. But go ahead and write it down. And I want you to come back to it in just a little bit. Because we're going to talk about this today in a way that uh, was very eye-opening to me as I was preparing But what, in your opinion, is the deepest need of every human being? And write that down. So I've been doing counseling for probably 13 years. Before that, I was a youth and family pastor for five years. So I've got a lot of experience with working with people that uh, are the outcasts, the downtrodden, the ones that uh, aren't seen. And this one in particular really stuck with me. So I was working at Aspen Point here in Colorado, and we had uh, a play therapy session. Anybody know what play therapy is? Basically, we get like crayons out and games and sand and get to have some fun. And I had this kid that was referred to me. She was five years old, and she came in, and she wouldn't even look at me. She'd just be, if I was talking to her, she'd be looking straight down. No uh, ability to recognize if she's understanding what I'm saying. Uh, she wouldn't even look up uh, to watch where she was going. I'm like, something's not right. Right? She's here to see me. So I wanted to... Uh, Obviously, five years old, talk therapy, not going to happen. And so we brought her into the play therapy room, and she kind of looked up a little bit and saw, and our play therapy room had a big sand tray, probably the size of this table, and we had toys just lined up on the bookshelves. And she kind of looked up and perked up a little bit, and I said, you you can do whatever you want. And she kind of looked at me. She wouldn't, again, hadn't said a word so she started grabbing things off the shelves, just like an armful, right? And she'd dump them in the middle of the sand and then come back around and grab another armful and dump them in the sand. And by the time we were done, and I had to clean all this up too, but she had a mat, all the toys were piled up in the middle of the sand. Now, if you've played with a little kid before, that's not normal, right? Usually they get a, a, a character out and they put it out there and they play with it, right? So I cleaned up put it away, brought her back to her caregiver and said, I'll see you next week. Next week she comes in, won't even look at me, and walks into the sand, and she, I didn't tell her what to do this time. She walks into the play therapy room and grabs all the toys and dumps them. We haven't said, you know, these are hour sessions. We haven't said one word to each other. And we do that for week after week after week after week. Probably ten weeks in, she grabs comes in, and I'm like, okay, here we go again. I'm going to spend another hour afterwards cleaning up. And she grabs a toy, and she brings it to the middle of the sand tray and looks up at me and says, you want to play? I'm sitting there going, okay, first of all, hold it together. (laughs) You know, the rule, my rule in therapy is that you can cry with your client, just don't cry harder than your client. (laughs) Uh, And I'm like a sympathy crier, so I'm like, oh my gosh. But she looked at me and she goes, you want to play? And so we played. Didn't say much, played. 
Next week, her caregiver, who was her grandma, said, what are you doing with her? I'm like, uh, that's an interesting question. What do you mean, what am I doing with her? And she goes, she's conversing at school. She's not in the principal's office as much anymore. She's doing what she's been asked at home. I said, well, I'm just, I'm just playing with her. And her grandmother kind of looked at me like cross-eyed. She's going, what? And what really was happening was that I was seeing her. Not trying to make her into something that she had to behave or to become or the rules that she had to follow. I didn't force any of that. I just was with her. And that's what I want to talk about today is the power of being seen. And there's something that we don't realize until it happens to us. This idea that if we are able to be seen beyond what's in front of people, there's a power to that. Our earliest relationships, so if we're talking about attachment, our earliest relationships actually build the template for how we relate to other people. So the first 10 to 18 months of our being on this earth lays down a schema or a foundation or a template that encodes in our memory and our relating how we engage with people the rest of our life. Now for some of us, and for those, many of those that I work with, uh, that was not a very good time in their life. They were neglected. They were uh, forgotten about. They were abused. And so their way of encoding or relating with other people is, I'm going to look down and try to get by. I'm not going to engage because of fear of getting hurt. And none of this, let me, hear, let me, let me say this real, real clearly, none of this is done consciously. It's encoded on our unconscious memory and our template. And so when we engage in a way that is not normal or maybe maladaptive, uh, and we build these relationships that don't seem to work, and we're like getting so frustrated. Why is this not happening? It's probably because of what was encoded on our memory and our brains back as as a child. Studies show that the first 24 to 48 hours of life is the most important time for connection. It's that skin-on-skin contact that we see uh, that creates those bonds. Now, if we don't get those, that's not the end of the world. We can still grow and, and, and connect throughout our life. But those are really key moments. And for somebody like me who was born two and a half months premature in an incubator, I didn't get any skin-on-skin contact. I was in a machine that was trying to keep me alive. And so for most of my life, even to this day, anxiety and depression are a part of my story. But they're not, my, they're not the end-all, be-all of my story. You, you get me? And so one of the things that I love um, is that we have the ability to change that. And so there's a thing called the attachment cycle I want to throw up on the screen real quick. And it's, it's just something for you to, to put reference to is before we go jump into Scripture here. But this idea that when we have a need and we communicate that need and that need becomes met or at least the person in our life tries to figure out that need, what that need is, Maybe we can't express it, but we have somebody in our life that sees us and helps us figure out that need and how to meet it. We develop a sense of self, right? A sense of identity, a sense of confidence, and a sense of, of I matter. But when that doesn't happen, when that need is expressed and nobody's there to pay attention, 
sometimes we just either shut down or try to figure it out ourselves, and we, then we shut people out, right? And a lot of times we develop that fractured self. But the beauty of this, and I, if was anybody here last weekend to hear Dr. Leaf, Dr. Caroline Leaf speak at all? Yes. So she talks about this idea that the, bla- the brain is plastic, meaning that it can change and grow over the lifespan of, of our, t- our time here on this earth. Up until 2000, so only, what, 18 years ago, we didn't think the brain could change or morph after a certain age, which is weird to me, like all the technology we have, and we didn't know this until 2000. But it, w- what we've learned since then is that the brain can grow and change and uh, develop and morph depending on the environment that it's in. And Dr. Leaf talks about the fact that our mind, the spiritual component of ourselves, actually is the key indicator and key factor of changing the physical part of our brain. So think, I mean, it's, again, it's pretty deep, but uh, if you want to learn more about that, go to listen to Dr. Leaf's podcasts or her YouTube channel, or even read some of her books. But I want to lay that foundation in that if our brains can grow and change, we can change how we relate, right? We're not just stuck. We have a choice in this. And so I want to show uh, a video real quick. And before the video comes up, I want to just preface this. This is actually an electron microscope video of a neuron growing. And as the neuron grows, it expands and reaches out to its environment. And then, as you see later, they're going to introduce uh, a little bit of mercury to it. And it shows how it shrivels up and and constricts. And this is a really good analogy that if we are in... um, relationships and environments that enhance our growth, we have explosive growth. But when we engage in negative relationships or negative thought patterns, we can actually uh, hinder the growth of our brain. So let's show the video real quick. It's pretty fascinating. So watch this neuron grow and reach out as it's maybe a thought or something in its environment. Isn't that fascinating? This is what's happening in our brains as, we, as you're learning right now. Your brains are growing new neural connections as you're listening to me speak. Making new connections. But here in a minute, they're going to introduce mercury to it, and look what happens. And this is what happens when we're in relationship. Positive relationships or negative relationships. Positive thoughts, negative thoughts. Do this exact same thing to our brain. Anybody just, like, I, I am so much a nerd when it comes to neuroscience. So if you don't share that, I'm sorry. You have to deal with me for a little bit. But it is so fascinating. The more that we dig into the brain and the mind, the more we see God. The more we see how we're, we're designed and, and meant to be created. And here's the the amazing thing that we don't talk about very often, is that our brain is designed for connection and relationship. Without it, we will die. Did you hear what I said? Our brain is designed for connection and relationship, and without it, we will die. And we see this as we look at history, and we see the fact that in communist countries where there are orphanages, with babies that have been left, and they're in a clean environment. Their diapers are changed maybe once or twice a day, and they're fed once or twice a day. 
but they're kept in their cribs. They're not held. They're not engaged with. What happens? They die. If we don't have relationship, we will die. And that's how God designed it. God is a relational God. You look at the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're in relationship with each other. And that's how we are designed as well. So open your Bibles with me to Isaiah 61, one of my favorite passages and one of our greatest mandates. And I want you uh, to look. We're going to look through verses 1 through 7 today. Isaiah 61, 1 through 7. And what we're reading through is, if you know the prophet Isaiah, you know that he has several servant songs in there. And basically what this is, is it's a, it's a prophecy that has been given to him for him to give to the people. And this is the fifth of his servant songs. And typically a servant song would be that uh, the mark of the Holy Spirit would be on him, and he'd be anointed in the Holy Spirit as he spoke these words. And if we look on to Luke 4, Christ fulfills this prophecy as he quotes this at the beginning of his ministry. And I want to look at this for a second, and we'll, we'll see where we're going for this in, in a minute. And then we'll come back to a slide that I skipped for, on purpose here. But let's read together. The Spirit of the God is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to open the prisons to those that are bound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance for our God. To comfort those who mourn. To console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of, um, sorry, the oil of joy for mourning, and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And hear this: that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified, and that they shall rebuild the ruins, and that they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the ruined cities. And the desolations of many generations, strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of foreigners shall be your plowmen and your uh, vine dressers. But you shall be named the priests of the Lord. They shall call you servants of our God. They shall eat uh, the riches of the Gentiles, and the glory shall be your. Uh, you shall boast. But hear this: instead of your shame, you shall have double portion, and instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Now let's go back real quick, Gabriel, to uh, the slide of, that I skipped on the attachment one. I want you to see this through this lens. In order for us to be in healthy relationship, we have to have three things. And this is really cool. There's only really three things that if they're done well. First of all, we have to be seen. And not just I'm looking at you and I see your physical body, but to be seen. What's going on behind the scenes? I know you well enough to know that you're not okay even if you're telling me that you are. And I'm going to speak into that, that kind of being seen. Then there's this idea of being safe. Am I in a relationship that I know that if I share my true feelings and my true struggles, that I'm going to be accepted and not cast away? So it's a safety, but it's also not a safety as far as presence, but also a safety in personhood. And then third, am I going to be soothed? Meaning, am I going to be okay and are you going to help me be okay by being in presence with you? So you get me? So there's three. Seen, safe, and soothed provide a secure base or a secure relationship. And if we don't have those three, we don't have a secure relationship. And I want to look at Isaiah 40, uh, 61 through this lens. And so think about this. When you attempt to see somebody for who they are and where they're at, what typically happens? What, what, what is your posture as an individual? You can throw up a hand or say something out loud. Yeah, anybody? Anybody? 
Okay, there's potential for judgment, right? What else? Sorry? Open-mindedness. We have to have a posture of open-mindedness. Absolutely. What else? Interest. Yeah, that might be a good thing, right? Absolutely. Vulnerability. Acceptance. There's something about our posture that has to change if we're going to enter into somebody else's woundedness, right? Can we stand up here? Or do we have to get down here? We can't stay where we're at if we're going to enter into somebody's woundedness or see where they're at. And I love verse 1. Verse 1, I'll read it again. Verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good tidings to the poor and sent me to heal the brokenhearted and proclaim liberty to the captives and to open the prisons to those who are bound. It's pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? We are called in here to preach, to heal, and to deliver. Doesn't sound like a typical mental health professional, does it? It should. That's what we do at our place. But if we're going to enter into those things, we have to bring some good news. Right? If somebody is in a place of despair and de- you know, a depth of despair, we have to bring good news. And sometimes that's just our presence. How many of you have entered into somebody's despair and you're like, I have no stinking clue what to say? Right? It happens all the time. And then we get uncomfortable and then we say something stupid, Right? Like, I'm, I'm guilty as charged here, right? And the reason we say something stupid is because we're uncomfortable and we want to make ourselves feel better. It's not about the other person in that moment. And this is why I love the Jewish tradition. When somebody is mourning and somebody is struggling, the Jewish tradition is we're going to come sit with you and not try to fix it. We're going to bring good news and laughter. And, and a lot of times in the Jewish tradition, which I really love, I think it's like, the, like another spiritual gift is food. Right? And they just and they just hang together. And usually the, the morning if somebody dies, the, the, the morning of somebody in the Jewish tradition is usually about a week. Everything shuts down for a week and people just come on over. They bring food, they laugh, they cry, they tell stories, they don't try to fix. But we have to bring some sense of good news into that, right? But if we're gonna enter into that with them as well, we also have to heal. And I want to talk about this idea of healing. You might not feel like that you are a healer, but your presence can be. The presence that you bring with you can be. So if we're bringing good news and bringing our presence to heal, think about a time in your life when you've been just distraught. And a friend notices, a friend sees you and says, hey, let's go see a movie. I don't want to go see a movie. I want to just sit here and feel sorry for myself. And they come over and they, like, let's get, get dressed, let's go, let's go see a movie, let's go do something. And by the end of the day or the end of the evening, you just, you, you have, like, you've taken a deep breath. Anybody been there before? Okay? It's the presence. It's the presence of a stronger person coming in and going, you know what, wherever you're going through right now, it's okay. Let me walk with you through that. And then proclaim liberty to the captives. What does that mean? Proclaim liberty to the captives. What is liberty? Freedom, right? And so if we can see something from a different perspective than the person that's going through it, and we can say, you know what? Let me walk with you through that. Let me bring good news. Let me have my presence. But I'm going to proclaim freedom. I'm going to speak words of life over you, and I'm going to walk with you through this. I always tell my clients uh, in session that if anybody tells you to get over something, you have my permission to smack them upside the head. We don't get over stuff. 
Okay, can I just say that right now? We get through it, right? We can't get through things without people, without relationship. And so this first verse in Isaiah is giving us kind of a game plan here of how do we enter into people's stuff. But when we bring good news, when we have a presence and we proclaim liberty over the captive, somebody that might feel captive over their mental health struggle, their relationship struggle, whatever that might look like, what are we doing? We're seeing them. We're seeing them for who they are, not what they bring to the table or what's physically in front of us. So those three things, bring the good news, provide healing and deliverance or freedom, are the, the first steps into being seen. Now look at verses 2 and 3. Isaiah then says, To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance to our God, to comfort all those who mourn, to console all those who mourn in Zion, and to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, and the garment of praise instead of the spirit of heaviness. And there's something really beautiful about this. Because if you see somebody... Now you have the ability to understand what they need, right? Instead of bringing your own agenda in, you have the ability to understand what they need. And if you understand what they need, then you're able to provide, provide some safety and soothing, right? And I love, again, the Jewish tradition of when somebody was mourning, they went all out, didn't they, Josh? Like, if you look at the Old Testament mourning, I mean, they would shave their heads, they would cut their skin, they would tear their clothes, they would sit in ashes for Seven to ten days, usually. And what Isaiah is saying is, no, don't leave them there. Go there, meet them where they're at, and bring them out. Give them the oil of joy. Give them beauty instead of ashes. Pull them out and give them something to look forward to and to be uh, engaged in. And, and the funny thing is, is... We can't do, again, I'm going to say this over and over again. We can't do this from a distance, can we? We have to be in it with them. And I want to be very careful and say that there are definitely boundaries you need to set. And, you know, empathy doesn't mean that you're taking on somebody else's feelings. Empathy means you're in the trenches with them and you're trying to understand where they're at and how they're feeling without pulling you down as well. So you have to be strong in the same thing. But we are now transitioning from the role of good news, deliverer, and healer to comforter and planter. And the reason I say planter is, look what happens in, in verse 4. Um, or not, so end of verse 3. He says that they may be called trees of righteousness. In NIV it says oaks of righteousness. If you think of an oak tree, what do you think of? Strong, deep roots, big boughs. And so what he's saying here is that if we walk through and we are bringing good news, and we're sitting with people and helping them heal, and we're delivering them from, uh, giving them into freedom, and we're comforting them, we're giving them a foundation to put roots in, right? To, To develop and to plant themselves in a way that can grow and succeed from there on. Are you with me? And then it's really cool at the end here, to if they're feeling seen, if they're feeling safe and soothed, then they're going to be secure. And look at the verses 4 through 5, 6, and 7. He's, they're, they're getting a chance to regrow their lives. They're getting a chance to take part in some of the blessing. They're getting a chance to, to grow once they're foundationalized. 
And here's the neat thing about this passage. That if we are followers of Jesus Christ, it's not a suggestion. If we are followers of Jesus Christ, this is not a suggestion. It's a commandment. It's a mandate for us to do these things. Because Jesus Christ in Luke 4, at the beginning of his ministry, quoted this and fulfilled this prophecy. That this is, he was the one that was going to come and bind up the brokenhearted. Right? To bring healing and to set free. And if we are Christ followers, this is our job to those around us. I think for so many times, we look at mental health as something out there, don't we? We see it on TV. I mean, good grief. You turn on the news this week and you see it everywhere. With what happened in Thousand Oaks to what happened in Pittsburgh. Uh, not to get political, but you just turn on the news and it's what's happening in, in our in our government, like we don't see each other. We don't care for each other the way we need to. And so I am going to challenge you with this. For mental health, and for a lot of times, and for most of, you know, until I got into the field, I looked at it as out there. Everybody out there has a mental health struggle. But what it will, if we were to normalize it and go, okay, you know what? Everybody in here has a struggle. And not one is worse than the other, or one is better than the other, or we're not going to set ourselves up in those things, right? But if we look at it and go, you know what? All of us struggle. And all of us have this mandate if we're Christ followers. You get where I'm going with this? Shouldn't we be the ones that are in the trenches with those that are around us? Going, you know what? I see you. And you're not going to get away because I see you. And I love you. And I want to be there with you. And I want to walk with you. And I want to engage in relationship with you so that you can get better. For many of us, we feel like the situations that we're in, the lives that we're living right now, is as good as it's going to get, and it's, it's all it's going to be. Have you ever had that thought? Like, I'm just stuck in this rut. Is this as good as it's going to get? And the answer is no. The answer is that you have a choice on how you're going to engage that trial and that tribulation. You have a choice on how you're going to reach out for relationships. But if we are all taking care of each other, everybody at this table and this table and that table and that table would be cared for because you're looking around the table going, who can I pour into? Who can I see provide safety and soothing for so that they have a secure base? It takes the eyes off of us and puts it on somebody else, knowing and hoping that we'll be cared for as well. And here's the beautiful thing, guys. If that happens, the brain changes 100% of the time. Not 50%, not 60%, not 10%. 100% of the time, if we engage in a relationship where we are seen, where we are safe, and we are soothed, our brain changes. And whatever junk you've been through in your life, can begin to heal. And those foundational relational templates that were unconsciously laid down because of whatever happened begin to get broken and begin to change and begin to get healthy. Are you with me? So my question for you is who in your life has God put for you to see? Is it a family member? Somebody that's 
been difficult to be around, and there's a reason that they've been difficult to be around, because they probably don't want to be seen. That's scary. Is it a friend? Is it a coworker? Is it a spouse? Is it a classmate? Whatever situation, I want you to think about this right now. Who has God called you to see? And what are you willing to do to make sure that they know that you see them? And I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm not saying that it's going to go like, oh my gosh, you see me, thank you, let me give you a hug and let's go do life together. That'd be sweet. But most times it's going to be like, oh dang, like no, like if you only knew, right? Have you ever said that to somebody or somebody said that to you? If you only knew, then you would. And that's where we go, you know what? I don't, I don't care if I only knew. I care about you and who God created you to be and who God created you to become. And I want to be in that relationship with you. And the beautiful part of this is that when we are in relationship with somebody like that, our brain actually reaches its fullest potential. Our brain doesn't reach its fullest potential by being individuals or isolated. It reaches its fullest potential by being in relationship. And part of the reason I'm so excited about this is that Study after study after study after study after study shows that relationships heal. I'll give, you a cl- I'll give you a little insight here. As counselors, 90% of what we do and the change that happens in our offices is because of relationship. Because we build a safe, secure relationship where they're seen. And I would love to work myself out of a job. I would. Counselors and counseling has happened because the church has not done what the church is supposed to do. And if 90% of what happens in change in a counseling setting is because of relationship, there's only 10% that you need schooling for, which stinks because I have a lot of student loans. But you have to have the paper, right? But think about that. If that's the case, you all are relational beings. So engaging in a relationship with somebody else and know that that can bring about healing. Isn't that kind of like cool and powerful? There's a study I just read out of Iceland. Uh, about 15 years ago, Iceland had the highest drinking rate in all of European countries among their teenagers. Iceland's a beautiful area, but it's pretty, you know, pretty isolated. And the government was like, what? What do we do? Kids are getting drunk. They're dropping out of school, they're smoking, they're doing all these things that are, are in, uh, hindering their be, you know, behavior. And they started going, you know what? We need to teach parents how to be in relationship with their kids. And so over the course of five years, they gave every month, they gave, no, no, sorry, every quarter. So four times a month, they gave each family $250, $250 per kid to do something with their kid. And then they had, they had relational classes of teaching about, you know, be home when they get home from school and don't leave them by themselves and all the things that we think would be common sense. As of this year, 2018, they have the lowest drinking problem in all of Europe. Relationship changes. When I get, so I'll, I'll uh, one more story, and then I have a quote that I want to throw up there. Um, so I had, so I see a lot of families, and I had this family come in, and it was kind of this, you know, the parents were, had no idea what to do. Their kid was acting out, and probably 14 years old, a young man, 
And the dad was just basically, I mean, the posture of the dad was he just dropped him in my office and said, fix him. I'm like, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. Because he's not the problem. But I didn't say that to the dad. I said, you know, okay, we'll, we'll take a look. And so I got to know the kid, and it realized that the kid was just reacting to his environment. And so I brought the parents in and said, if this is going to work, you need to do family therapy with me. And the dad was grumbling, and, you know, I said, okay, well, dad's not going to like me much. And I called the dad out a couple different times, and one time he stormed out and called me some choice words. And I'm like, okay, well, we're going to keep on doing therapy. And he was used to having everybody kind of like, oh, stop, he's gotten mad, let me go follow him. And we didn't. And about you know, 20 minutes later, he sheepishly came back in, <laughs> sat down, and kind of gave me a half apology, uh, which is, I don't really care about that. But, uh, and he goes, okay, I get it. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm the problem. What do I need to do? And I said, okay. I said, let's do an experiment. And so I sent the kid out, and then Dad and I talked for a little bit. And I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you with something. Spend 15 minutes a day with your son doing what he likes six days a week. And if his behavior doesn't change in three weeks, I'll refund you all the counseling. He's like, ha-ha. <laughs> you can see in his eyes, oh, this is, yeah, I'm going to get my money back. And in three weeks, he came in and in tears saying, my son wants to talk to me. He wants to come hang out with me. He'll come tell me when he has a bad day and we have a conversation. He goes, I had no idea that relationship could do that. And all the dad was doing, all I was telling the dad to do was see him, be safe for him. And when he has something that is an issue, provide soothing. And all they did would play video games, they'd go get ice cream, they'd go for a walk, they'd throw the football around. It's not rocket science, guys. And so as you're thinking about those in your life that need relationship, it's not rocket science. It's going, hey, you know, I saw that you posted something on Facebook, can I come over? Let's go grab coffee. But it's also this, guys. If we don't look at people in the eyes on a regular basis, we're not going to know if something's wrong. The average American spends 30 seconds a day looking into people's eyes. And the act of looking into somebody's eyes actually jumpstarts the facial recognition and the relational connection part of your brain. So you have to be in proximity. And so my hope for you in this room is that you will start taking this seriously, if you haven't already. You have the power to change those lives around you. And maybe there's things that are bigger than you, right? And that's where a pastor or a professional counselor comes in, and that's okay. But I always ask my clients, who do you have in your life that are safe, that see you and know you without judgment, that as we work through therapy, that they're going to be the ones that walk with you? So maybe you can be those ones. And I want to throw this quote up as we end, and I have a couple of things I want you to talk about real quick. This messy embrace happens when we allow these things that we talked about today to play out in real time. As we journey with people towards healing and towards Christ and towards wholeness, we must understand that everyone's healing looks different and everyone's healing is going to be messy as they sort out their emotions and their hurts and their frustrations and their uncertainties. But I will tell you this, there is no greater honor to walk with somebody in the valley and then to celebrate with them when they come out. So I asked you the question at the beginning, what is the most important thing for human beings? I want you to go back and look at that, and I want you to, whatever you wrote, keep it there. 
but I want you to put in big, big words, big letters, whatever, uh, connection, relationship, being seen. Some of the happiest people I've ever met in my life were in the bush in Africa and in the mountains of the Himalayas when I was traveling because they had relationship, they had closeness of a family. They had nothing, but they had each other. So if we talk about out there, everything out there, mental health, let's talk about in here for a second. And I want you to write down somebody's name that you're going to connect with today. Who is somebody that you can call up or text or go over after church? Build a snowman or something. Go sledding. But just say, hey, you've been on my mind, and I love you, and I want to make sure that you're okay. And I'm going to do this. Like, don't tell them you're going to do this. It might be a little creepy. But just be intentional, guys. Be intentional about your relationships. So I went a little longer, Josh, than I expected. But I think I want you just to, to sit there for a minute, maybe talk at your table for about two or three minutes. And if you sit at the same tables every week, which I hope you do because you're building relationships, uh, talk with each other about who you're going to reach out, who you're going to talk with, and then Josh will come up and close. All right, young adults. Hey, can we give it up for Dr. Mark Mayfield for making the hall in the snow? coming out here. Thanks for being here. Hey, just a reminder, uh, next week, Dr. Mark is going to be with us again, along with Pastor Brad Baker. Uh, We're going to have a panel up here. The three of us are going to sit and open up a conversation a little bit more about mental health, about some issues that we've seen in El Paso County. Dr. Mark and I were just talking uh, about the epidemic that is still very much pervading our county with teen suicides. So um, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about a number of different issues. We're going to have a number to text in questions if you guys so desire. So that'll be up. Uh, You guys can think of your questions that you may want to ask and kick to us. Really, Dr. Mark and Pastor Brad will do the heavy lifting. I'll just be simply moderating but um, because I'm I'm Bush League when it comes to this issue. But um, it's going to be a great time. So come on out. Um, It's going to be a blast. But uh, in the meantime, for this Sunday and as we wrap up this morning, let's go ahead and stand. And I'd love to send us out here with a prayer and a benediction. So let's pray, young adults. Father, would you make it so in us? I pray that we would be the people who have the eyes to see those who are right in front of us. Uh, You said, Jesus, that we would be your body here on this earth. And would you uh, let us be the people who look like Jesus and who smell like Jesus and uh, that sound like Jesus. And in the contact of relationships around us, we pray that Jesus, you, uh, through your Holy Spirit and through our interaction with one another and the, the pressing into relationships this week, would it be uh, medicine and oil to the broken soul and the weary spirit? And I pray, Lord, that the substance of the kingdom would be revealed among us as we do so. And I pray that you would bless us and keep us. Would you make your face shine upon us and be gracious to us? We pray that you would send us out here in peace and in safety, uh, and that everything we do this week would be to the glory of your name. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the young adult said, amen, amen.